You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, this the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Well, today we are continuing our journey into our series, Holy Smokes, we're studying Leviticus. And in that, we're looking at this theme of holiness throughout the book as we travel through it together, and the idea of these smoke offerings. And as the uh, video showed... The holiness of God was centered behind a veil. So if you came into the holy place, there would be a veil in the holy place, and behind that would be the Ark of the Covenant. That would be the core of the sun, so to speak, of God's holiness. If you looked at that veil, you would see two angels. So imagine these two angels you see up on the, uh, the uh, area up there, um, projected, whatever that area is. Imagine those sewn into the veil. That was a reminder that in the same way that the angels stood at the Garden of Eden and didn't allow us to go back in to eat and permanently stayed in the position that we were in in sin, God put angels to guard us from the danger of being lost from him for eternity. And so this was a reminder that only the holy, holiest of days and only the high priest could go behind the veil to go in, into God's presence once a year. Then in front of the veil was the holy place. Here was the incense altar. We spoke of the holiness of God, the pillar of smoke coming up, as well as our prayers ascending to him. The showbread, God is the promise-keeping God with 12 tribes, reminisced here with the showbread. And then, of course, God is the fiery flame, a reminder of his presence leading the people with uh, with a pillar of fire all those years. And so only priests could access the holy place or the sanctuary, and only the high priest could get behind the veil and pass the angels under very specific conditions to get to the Ark of the Covenant. 
So we're going to talk about the idea of holiness today because we're going to look at an offering called the grain offering that is the holiest of offerings. No blood, no meat, no barbecue, and yet God will call this the holiest of offerings. Now, not only are we studying Leviticus, but we're also studying how to study the Bible. So if you came in today, you got a bookmark. It's the second week we're stuffing these. From this point on, you're going to have to pick them up. So please put this in your Bible. This is going to be an easy way to help you learn how to study the Bible through principles called hermeneutics. Last week, we looked at the principle of the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. So if you find a passage you don't understand the Old Testament, go to BibleGateway.com or some other website and just type in the word. Today we're going to see that with the word leaven, we'll see that with salt, we'll see that with sacrifice, that the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. The second thing we're going to discover today is the principle is context. You want to first understand what this verse meant in its original context before you apply it to your context. And we're going to find that today because when you think of flour, if you don't understand the context of flour in Levitical days, you're not going to fully appreciate and apply it accurately to you today. We'll look at that today. So use the Bible to interpret the Bible and make sure you understand the original context before you apply it to your context. We'll look at that together. Well, here's the main concept in chapter two. Do... Take God's word with a grain of salt. Do, in fact, it's going to be insisted upon that we take God's word with a grain of salt. You ever wondered when Lot and his wife are running out of Sodom and Gomorrah? And as they're running away, she decides to turn back and find her identity and source from the very place God was going to judge. And of all the things that could have happened to her, earthquake, etc., she turns instead into what? A pillar of salt. Why is that? We're going to find out today in Leviticus chapter 2. And why is it that God references throughout the Bible this idea? The people say, hey, why is it that we can't grow anything in our fields because of the brimstone and the salt that's in the land? Why has God done this to us? And God says, well, because you've broken the covenant. What kind of covenant? He'll reference it again in the book of Numbers. I have made a covenant of salt with you, a salt covenant. I've never heard of a salt covenant, and God speaks as if that's the main thing I've got going on between the two of us. We're going to discover today exactly what a salt covenant is and why it is so critical to understanding through the grain offering, what I'm going to call the worship offering. Three things about the grain offering. Number one, do sweeten the offering, he's going to tell us. It's the sweetest of offerings. Do, two, don't sour the offering. And three, do salt the offering. Lots and lots of salt on this offering. And here's what's going to happen. If you understand the grain offering, you're going to discover what God said is the most pleasing thing you can do. Like, wouldn't you want to know, like, what's the most pleasing thing I could do to show God my affection? This is God's explanation of what the most pleasing thing you can do, the most holy offering that touches his heart. So first... Do, do sweeten the offering. When anyone, notice anyone can do this, not just a priest, anyone who wants can offer a grain offering to the Lord. His offering shall be a fine flour, to which we immediately go fine flour. Yeah, what's it cost? Like a buck. My wife or husband told me to stop on the way home and get flour. Okay, so cheap offering to God is what we think until we go to the original context. But it's got to be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it, put frankincense on it, bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, 
who are going to take a handful of it with the frankincense and oil, and they're going to burn that as a sweet aroma to the Lord. So if last week we smelled the barbecue of burning meat, today we smell baking bread. That's what it's going to smell like in the sanctuary. The smell of bread is a sweet-smelling aroma ascending to God. Now, there's five aspects of this offering, and each one begins to explain why this is so important. The first aspect is that this worship offering was very, very, very costly. Again, it's hard for us to understand that because flour is so cheap. But in those days, fine flour was considered fit for a king. And the reason it was fit for a king is because it was almost impossible to find. And it was very, very costly to make. When I was in Israel, I got a chance to see a, basically a grain crusher, the same kind that Samson would have walked around. If you were going to take the heads of your grain and you were going to crush them, you would use something this big. Now imagine, you've got 100,000, maybe a couple million Israelites traveling out of Egypt. One, who wants to carry that thing around with you? And even when you use that to crush the heads of the grain, you don't have fine flour, you have coarse flour. So after going through that process, you then had to take the coarse flour that you had ground up and then by hand grind it and grind it and grind it and powder it until it became fine flour. Fine flour was very, very costly of time and of money, so much so that this was a gift offering, this was a present worthy of a king. And notice, anyone who wanted to offer their very best offering to God would be an incredible act of worship. The second thing it notes is that this offering allowed non-priests to participate. This was unheard of in the ancient world as well. You would give your offering and the priest did all the work because you had ground it, you had found it, you had put it together. It says that he, the anyone who brings the offering, would take that and add oil to it. So you would bring your fine flour and you would add oil to it. Oil, always a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and you would be kneading that together, the fine wine and the oil. It was your way of saying, God, I want you to be in my life in the same way I poured oil into this offering. God, I want your very best in my decisions, your very best in my life, and God, I want to give you my very best because you are a king. And God, I want to knead in your presence and your grace and your love and your peace into my heart, into my life, and into my relationships. And after you had the oil poured into the grain offering, you would then add frankincense. Frankincense, was a really, it's a really interesting spice because it has an aroma, it has a flavor, but you can't get access to the aroma or flavor unless you break it. Only when it is broken do you get access to what's inside of it. You wonder why the wise men brought frankincense to Jesus? It was a reminder that he, like the grain offering, would need to be broken to become the sweet-smelling aroma that ascends like the prayer offering to God. So, this worship offering, two, was allowed non-priests to participate. Three, it involved the seeds for the future. So let's start here. You're a couple million people traveling out of Egypt. Where do you get grain? You don't have any fields. You haven't planted anything. Where's this grain coming from? What are you eating every day if you're an Israelite? Manna. Because there's no food, you're eating manna. So where is the grain coming from to grind up to become this flour? 
Almost every commentary is convinced that the only grain you would have prior to the promised land, which is not going to happen for 40 years, are the seeds you took from Egypt. These were the grain seeds that you were hoping you would plant for your future farm, your future fields. And as you're traveling through the the desert together, you have basically this handful of seeds, grain. This is basically the equivalent of your 401k. This is your future. This is your future hopes. And you decide one day, yes, I've got future hopes. I want to plan for the future. It's all smart. But I want to take my future, my finest security, and I'm going to give that as a grain offering to God. And you take a huge part of your security, a huge part of your finances, a huge part of your future, and the seeds of your future say, God, you know what's even better than having seeds for my future? Having your promise for my future. And I'm going to grind up my retirement accounts Pour oil as a reminder that I want you in my life and future, and I want to offer this to you as the finest grain offering. Which is why, God says, it's considered the most holy offering. With all the frankincense, the, the, the priest would burn it as a memorial on the altar, offered by fire, and it would be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. God would say, wow, I feel your affection for me. I feel your desire to be close to me. I feel your recognition of me as a king. That there's a way in which giving God our very best financially, giving God of our very best of our life, touches God's heart in the way that he calls it the most holy offering. Look at that. The most holy. We just learned only God is holy, but God says when you give him your best, it is the most holy of offerings. Now, another thing that's interesting, he goes on to say, because worship can be highly personal, he gives a lot of ways in which you can sort of put your personality into this thing. So you've just made it, you've created, you've put it together, it smells like incense, it's got the oil, it's got the frankincense, and he says, now, you can cook this whatever way you like. As long as it has the fine flour, as long as it has the oil, you can bake it in an oven if you want, you can bake it in a pan if you want, or you can put it in a covered dish if you want. As long as each time it's got fine flour, oil, and frankincense. This is the equivalent of God saying, I am so pleased with how you bring it, you can bring it in a personalized way. You want to make me bread? Make me bread. You want to make pancakes? Make me pancakes. You want to make me a donut? Make me a donut. It can come in whatever form you want. I want you to sort of have fun with it, to present it in a way that reflects your personality. And I will receive that as the most holy offering. And then he reiterates in verse 10 that it's the most holy. So once you've prepared it, the priest will take the grain offering, a memorial portion, burn it on the altar. So he would actually rip off a piece, and a piece of it, this handful, would be burned on the fire and go directly to God. The other piece, the priest is going to cook, and he's actually going to take this bread that's been cooked, and he is going to take your holy offering, and it's going to have access to a place that only holy things have access to. The priest will take it behind the veil and will bring it into the holy place. And here the priest will sit in God's presence, and they will eat your bread. They will celebrate communion. They will commune with God eating your holy offering in the presence of God. And something that a moment ago was just an asset, it was just money, it was just flour, it was just grain, has become holy. It's 
simultaneously financing the operation of the sanctuary. But more than that, it has become communion in the presence of God. That's what this grain offering is. And that's why God says again here, it is the most holy of all of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. One portion burned directly, the other portion eaten by the priests in the high place. Now, immediately we begin to see Jesus here in so many different ways. One, Jesus is the King of Kings. And Jesus, to be an offering, a grain offering to God, he too will be ground up. He too will be crushed. He too will be destroyed, not only on the torturing uh, post, but also on the crucifix. That He will be the fine flower, beaten and beaten and beaten so that he can be presented to God as an act of worship. Secondly, if you remember, Jesus in John chapter 12 says, a piece of grain, grain offering, has to die so that it can come back to life and produce new fruit. Jesus, the grain offering, had to die so that he could come back and produce new fruit by turning all of us into grain offerings to share his peace, love, and joy throughout the world. Thirdly, as I mentioned the frankincense, the wise men bring frankincense as a reminder that Jesus' ultimate goal will be to be the grain offering broken as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. And many commentators believe that the grain offering represents both his humanity, the flower portion, and his divinity, because the Holy Spirit's always shown by oil as it is mixed in. That he is both fully God and fully man, burnt and destroyed and ascended to heaven as a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, isn't that awesome? So, do sweeten the offering. Second thing, though, don't sour the offering. He's very, very clear on this. Don't sour the offering. No grain offering which you shall bring to the Lord, shall be made with leaven. No leaven in this. No yeast in this. You shall not burn, don't ever, ever, ever burn in my sanctuary any leaven nor any honey in the offering. Why? What's God's problem with honey and leaven? Well, we'll find that out in a second. But notice he goes on. He says, As for the offering of first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. So remember, eventually they're going to get into the promised land. And you're going to come to the promised land, you're going to plant, plant your first field. And you're going to have the first grain come up, the first harvest come up, years of planting. And finally, the first amount of your grain comes. And God said, I want you to take the first portion of your grain before you eat any, the very best, the first part, the I've been waiting for this a long time part. I want you to take the first portion of your paycheck, basically. And I want you to take those first fruits I want you to bring them before God and offer them as your first offering. God, thank you for how you have provided, and I'm trusting you to provide for this season. So the opposite of what we do today, you know, pay all the bills, there's anything left, maybe I'll write something for God. This was more, God, I want the first thing I do with what comes into my life to recognize you're my provider, and I want to give back to you the first fruits of what you provided for me. But, he says, when you do that, no leaven... And no honey. And we're going to show how cross-references work in just a second. Because if you don't understand what leaven is, or what it means, or why is God against leaven, the New Testament's going to help us in a moment. Leaven is actually comes from Hebrew word shemet, which means to sour something. And so this idea that when you come into God's presence, God had a natural order for things, and that yeast changes the natural order of your bread. 
And though it was fine to eat that out there, not to eat that um, in God's presence was very, very clear. And so God did not want any yeast in the, the offering or in his presence. So we said, what's God got against leaven? Well, before we get to the New Testament, sometimes you read the stuff and you're like, I just don't know. I can't figure it out. So sometimes we just trust God that there's something going on here that we don't fully understand. Reminds me of my father-in-law. He uh, burns firewood all the time, lives out on a farm. And one day he was burning all this firewood. And imagine I'd come to him that day and say, hey, hey, don't, don't burn that wood. Don't burn that wood. Chad, I've been burning wood here for 40 years. Son-in-law, what do you think you know? Listen, I know something you don't. I come back in the time machine from what's about to happen. Don't burn that. I'm fine. My father-in-law starts burning this big pile of wood like he's done a hundred times. And a few minutes later, he can't breathe. He gets rushed to the hospital. What happened? On those particular trees you were burning and on those particular pieces of wood you were burning were gigantic poison ivy vines. And he literally burned poison ivy and was inhaling poison ivy and had poison ivy down his throat, in his lungs, and all over his body. And you go, I didn't understand it, but I wish I had listened to it. So there's some aspects of which God's warnings here we're not going to fully understand. But we say, God, I'm going to trust you. But here's where the New Testament helps. If you look up the word leaven in Bible Gateway, does the New Testament speak about leaven? And the answer is yes. In 1 Corinthians it says, Therefore, purge out of yourself old leaven. He'll define it in a moment. That you may be a new lump. God wants you to be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened. Now look at it. You are truly unleavened. God is saying that when you come to Jesus, you were leavened, which he's going to show in just a second, is sin. And God makes you new. You are a new lump. And the new lump you are is fully forgiven, fully unleavened, fully righteous, and fully loved. And when you understand your new identity as an unleavened child of God, you then come in contact with opportunities to sin. There's some, some honey comes into your life, thoughts about yourself or God or the world or, or temptations or decisions, and you purge or reject the leaven or the honey and you reject it because it's not worthy of your identity as unleavened bread. Indeed, Christ, our Passover, more Leviticus, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven. Now, he defines it. What is leaven? Nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness. So mal leaven is sin. Malice, for example, dividing people up in your family. I'm a so-and-so side, so-and-so side. I'm gossiping about people. I'm speaking in a maligning way toward other people. You need to, as someone that God has accepted, you need to reject malice and all forms of wickedness because it's not worthy of your new identity. Instead, you need to practice unleavened behavior like sincerity, not being hypocritical, not being double-minded. In contrast to the leaven of wickedness, you need to actually practice truth. And you see how just in one cross-reference, we're suddenly able to go, oh, I'm starting to get what leaven was. It's not just hey, deep thoughts from Chad. It's, oh, it's in the Bible. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. But what's God's problem with honey? This one's a little harder. One idea is um, ceremonial uncleanness, which we'll speak about in future weeks. It seems like because honey is an excretion from an animal, 
you can't bring into God's presence. Now, God's not against honey. He'll call the, the future land the land of milk and honey. In the book of Song of Solomon, honey will be referenced. So all through the Bible, God will speak about honeycomb. So he's not against honey, but in the context of his sanctuary, you can't bring an excretion from an animal into his presence. But there's got to be more to it. So you do a little research. I wonder what a bee meant in Egypt. I we went through the Exodus together. We realized almost every plague was aimed at a particular Egyptian god. The same thing's going on here. You see, honey was used constantly in the Egyptians as part of their worship. And it was part of fertility worship. You would come into the temple of the Egyptian gods and you'd sleep with the priest or the priestess and you acted out bee rituals as you were having sex together. And I think God doesn't want any of that sensuality, even a hint of it, to come into his place. He wants you to recognize his worship is about faithfulness. It's about commitment. It's not about sensuality. So I think that's one of the reasons he rejects honey. The second thing is if you look up the legend of Ra, you'll see that all through hieroglyphics, they worship the bees in Egypt. This is Ra, and Ra, the story is told that he would cry tears, and the tears that came out were bees. And those bees were the origination of you and I as human beings. Those bees flew to earth and became humans. So bees in the Egyptian culture were a sign that God's not our creator, Ra's our creator. We are the excretion of Ra, and God did not want any of that sensuality or any of that uh, alignment with Ra brought into his sanctuary. That's my best take on it. Beyond that, I'm going to trust that God says, no honey in your bird offerings. So one, do sweeten your offering. Two, don't sour your offering. And now we get back to salt. Do salt your offering. And every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. My mom would love this. Lots of salt, God says. You can never have enough salt right here on your offering. Now remember, the first portion is going to be burnt. You're not going to have to eat it. But you're putting salt in this. And God says several times here, make sure there's lots and lots of salt in your offering. Now why does he say this? And he goes on. You shall not lack the salt. Of the covenant. And here's this idea from Numbers and Deuteronomy that we're in a salt covenant. It begins here in Leviticus chapter 2. You shall not lack salt. You shall offer salt. If you have a grain offering, it needs lots and lots of salt. Why? Because your first fruits, it's a reminder when you give God your very first and best, when you give God the first check of your paycheck, when you give to the sanctuary, when you give to God's work. It's an acknowledgement that you're in a salt covenant with God. So what's a salt covenant? Very common in ancient times, when you made a commitment, you didn't bring lawyers together, you made a salt covenant. You put salt on the back of your hand, they put salt on the back of their hand. We took a sacrifice, we would cut that animal in half, one portion here, another portion there. You and I, with salt on our hands, would walk in a figure eight through the offering, basically saying, I promise to do such and such and such and such of this. This is a binding, permanent, lasting covenant. And if you and I break the covenant, the results are we shall be like these, this animal split in half. And if you break your covenant, I can take this salt and I can spread it into your fields so that your fields will never produce again. There are consequences to not living according to the covenant. Pretty shocking if you go back to Genesis 12, I think, when God makes a covenant with Abraham. He's going through a salt covenant, but instead of both people walking, God puts Abraham to sleep and God appears as smoking pot. Not that smoking pot, a pot that's smoking. And the pot goes in a figure eight, God's way of saying, I am going to be faithful to the salt covenant 
even if you're not faithful to your part. But often you'll hear Christians saying, well, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter how I live. No. The salt covenant reminds you, even if you're in a covenant that God's forgiven you, there can be severe salt put in your life when you disobey. You cannot have the growth of peace and joy and goodness if you don't live according to the salt covenant. That God spreads consequences in your life to face the consequences to draw you back to him. That's what's going on here with the salt covenant. He goes on. After you put salt in there, you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It's a grain offering. And the priest is going to take this, this handful portion that he calls the memorial portion. It comes from three Hebrew words put together, and the word turns into be eskarak, which literally means to remember, to remember. You need to remember to remember. And another portion of that verb is you need to remember that God remembers. That the discipline of coming to God's presence, the discipline of financially giving regularly of your first fruits, was your way to remember, to remember God is my source. God is my king. God is my comfort. God is my identity. It was a reminder that if I don't remember to remember, I forget. I forget who I am. I forget what is true. I forget who my source is. I forget that God is king and I'm not. It was also a reminder to remember that God remembers. God remembers his salt covenant with us. God is the one who keeps his covenant. God is the one who's going to keep his promises. It doesn't feel like it right now. I'm going to this. I'm putting another salt covenant. God, I want to remember to remember that you're in charge, that you're in control, and that you love me. That is why regular times of Bible study are needed in your life. Not to check off a box, to remember to remember. That's why financial giving in a weekly or monthly or biweekly way, it puts your discipline in place to say, I'm not just writing a check, God, I'm going to remember to remember who you are. It's like prayer or fasting. Putting these disciplines in your life are grain offerings or worship offerings to realign yourself to God. Remember to remember. Which brings us back to Lot and his wife. So when Lot and his wife are running, God says, I want you to trust me for salvation. Trust me for your future. Trust me for your needs. Or you can trust the place that's being judged. Do you want a salt covenant with me or a covenant to get the consequences of that place? And Lot and his wife run. And as they're trusting God, she says, you know what? Instead of trusting God to be my source and my covenant, I think I'm going to look back and align myself and covenant myself with Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is why of all the ways she could have been judged, she's turned into a pillar of salt. She, like the fields, has faced the consequences of the salt covenant. Which again is why, notice how often God says, I'm in a permanent forever relationship in the salt covenant. He starts in numbers. He says, all of your heave offerings, you brought your heave of of grain to God, are holy. Look at that. We just talked about how amazing, holy, and otherworldly God is. When you bring your assets or your money to God, God says those heaves of grain become holy in his presence. And God has given you an ordinance forever, permanent salt covenant. He loves you. He accepts you. He's in a covenant with you. And it's called a covenant of salt. There it is again, forever. 
Second Chronicles references it. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? Then we jump to the New Testament. And I think this comes to our key takeaway then. What does this mean for us? Lots of things. But number one, I think it means to be salty. Be salty in your sacrifices. And now we not only give of our money to be a sacrifice, we become a living sacrifice that's salty. And specifically, Paul will reference Leviticus to talk about how we speak to people who believe differently than us as being salty. Two examples. New Testament, another reference to salt. Everyone will be seasoned, Levitical language, with fire. In the same way that the Levitical offering was burned by fire, you are going to be seasoned or burned through different challenges and circumstances in your life. And God is going to use that to season you with a reminder that he is faithful. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Levitical language. Salt is good. A reminder that God is with you no matter what you've been through. He won't divorce you. He won't break you. He won't break off from you. So have salt in yourself. Remind yourself of God's faithfulness. And have peace with one another. So what's one of the ways that we can be salty? To have peace with each other, not malice. To work toward reconciliation, to forgive one another. To say that I believe God forgave me, but I refuse to forgive my uncle, my best friend, my business partner, my ex. You're not practicing the salt covenant. Take the salt God's given you and pass it on to others. Secondly, Paul picks up on this idea of being seasoned with salt in Colossians. He says, here's how you can be salty. Walk in wisdom toward those who are not Christians, those on the outside, those who are unconvinced. Don't be an idiot. Don't be foolish. Don't be judgmental. Walk wisely toward creating influence with those who believe differently from you. Redeem the time. Make the most of your opportunity here on earth to develop relationships with those who do not believe the way you do. That's what it means to be salty. Be salty in your sacrifice, but be salty in the world. Let your speech. How are you going to do that? How are you going to influence people? Well, long before you talk about Jesus, God, or the Bible, it's, they're going to look at the way you talk. What comes out of your mouth at work, in your neighborhood, in your leadership. Let your speech be seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt. See Leviticus again? How you talk to your spouse, how you talk to your kids, how you talk to your employees, how you talk to your boss, that is a way in which we build influence with outsiders. We are seasoned with salt. He goes on, that, they, that you may know how you ought to answer each one, that you're discerning God's spirit. What do you want me to do? I had one of those conversations recently. If you ever read her book, um, Out of the Salt Shaker, Becky Pippert talks about how to start spiritual conversations. It's incredibly practical, incredibly real. I read it years ago, lots of great examples. I had a friend I'd gone to his wedding recently, and we went skiing a few weeks after. I said, well, I really enjoyed the wedding. I haven't been to a Catholic wedding before. I said, uh, there's something I heard that maybe I misunderstood, but I'd love to ask you a question about it. He said, sure. I said, in your vows, I heard you promise that it was, if I heard right, the priest said, it's your job to get your wife to heaven. I said, did I hear that right? He said, yeah. I said, wow. I said, well, how do you c- commit to that? Like, what's the list you need to do to help get your wife to heaven? He says, well, I don't know. We go to church, we have kids or something. I said, okay, I guess you're not feeling quite the pressure I was. And we just got into this great conversation about what gets you to heaven and what is grace and and what is the main message. It was just a neat spiritual conversation while we're skiing together at Perfect North to start those conversations. 
God is saying part of, uh, of answering those is just knowing how to start conversations and to talk humbly and graciously about the grace that we have in Jesus. And being seasoned with salt is saying, I want to give God my very best. John and I were uh, visiting a friend uh, about a year ago who was in the last stages of hospice. And a man who had been very, very generous. He had given grain offerings to religious and irreligious causes all over the city and the world. And I remember John and I were sitting in his room together, and, and I assumed he was a Christ follower just from conversations, but John had the boldness to say, hey, can we make sure, can you tell us for sure you're trusting in Christ uh, to defeat death for you? And this pretty private person who was a friend of both of ours said, yes, I am trusting Christ. You can tell people at my funeral that I am trusting Christ and Christ alone to be my source. He died, it was a week later, I guess, and when he died, we, um, we came to do his funeral. And the list of, I mean, it was like page after page of the generosity he'd given to people and cities and, and all kinds of stuff. And so I was preparing the funeral, and the family came to us and said, you can't mention any of his generosity. I mean, that, like that was my whole talk. <laughs> He said, no, he, he so wanted these offerings to be secret giving before God. He wants his reward in full in heaven. Don't talk about the funeral. I thought, now that's a most holy offering. It's really impacted by that, just the humility of that and wanting these to be holy offerings before God. Remind me a little bit of Tim Tebow. He was um, recruited by uh, Belichick and he had an opportunity to do a commercial shoot, one-day shoot. He would get a million-dollar paycheck for a one-day shoot. But because he's new for the team, he talked to Belichick, and Belichick says, "Eh, Timmy, I don't think I really want you to do that. And here's what uh, he said in this article. I didn't even think twice about it. I wanted the chance to impress Coach Belichick more than I wanted the money. I'll say that if I were on any other team, I would have probably said yes to the offer. But the thoughts he offered in our initial conversation mattered to me even more than a million dollars. And then Belichick cuts him, right? Like, oh, my goodness. Crying out loud. This is the idea here that God is saying, I don't cut you. You are forever in a salt covenant with me. And we say because God has made a permanent covenant with us, we do want to give God our best because we'd rather have the covenant than a million dollars. We want God to know how thankful we are of the salt he's given to us. So be salty. In your sacrifices, be salty in the world. Let me pray and then I get a quick announcement. Father, thank you for your salt. Thank you for this grain offering and offer of sacrifice. And Father, we just thank you for, um, for being with us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A quick announcement before I let you go. Um, we had a uh, part of this series has been really about worship and teaching people how to worship. And so Natalie and our team has really, as maybe mentioned last week, how much you enjoyed what our team put together. And so we are just excited about the worship and the journey we're on. But Natalie came to us about 30 days ago, about a month ago, and just shared uh, good news for her, sad news for us. And I wanted her to share a little bit what God's doing in her life. And I wanted to pray for her. And she's going to continue worshiping with us um, this month. But I did want you to hear her story. And I wanted to thank her publicly for the way in which she continues to lead us in worship. So, Natalie, tell us a little bit your story. Well, five years ago when I came to Horizon, I knew that the Lord had something very specific that he wanted us to learn together. And that was exactly what we're talking about now. How we as worshipers have full access into the presence of God from the outer courts into the inner courts. And... As a result of that, 
I have watched you individually and corporately grow into the most beautiful worshipers ever. Um, but at the same time, I didn't realize that the Lord was wanting you guys to teach me something too. And what he wanted Horizon to teach me was just how fiercely he loves his church. You guys know how much God loves his church. He just thinks his church is so beautiful. And as a pastor's kid, I've never gotten to choose my congregations. My dad did. But you guys were my first church that I got to choose. And the church that taught me things that I needed to learn so that he could move me into a new season of ministry. And so this year, in 2016, I began songwriting. And I began songwriting for the church based off of what I know about you guys and what you've taught me and what the Lord's taught me through you. And it has launched me into a new season, an open door that we feel, my husband and I feel, that we have to walk through. A season of songwriting for the church and also raising up the next generation of worship leaders who are going to be responsible for leading you guys and leading the United States and the world in worship that brings heaven to earth. And it is with great humility and honor that I stand here and I thank you for the last five years. You guys scared me a little bit, and I think I scared you a little bit (laughs) five years ago as I was jumping around singing Revelation songs. But I know that these last five years, just like we learned in our last series, that God moved his people to get his kingdom work accomplished. And you have been intricate chess pieces in my role in ministry of showing me how much God loved his church so that I can continue on into ministry for many years to come and taking as many leaders as possible with me to teach how much God loves his church so that we can write songs for his church, that we can lead people in worship passionately and authentically and train up God's church to understand that they are no longer spectators of worship, but that they are full participants running into the presence of God. And you guys have done that. A couple of months ago, I looked out over the crowd, and you guys were just all in. You were all in. I just worshiping. And the Lord said, look what I have done, Natalie. Do you guys know that? Mm. He has done it. And so it is with great humility that I say that my season here at Horizon, although the door is closing, that we together are going to continue running together for his kingdom until that great day we're all around the throne worshiping together. And so thank you Mm. from the bottom of my heart for being my worship leaders. Because each and every week I look out and I see you guys and you just fill my heart with such joy. And I could not be happier to be called your worship leader. So thank you. Thank you. I told Natalie, I said, uh, you know, someday we're going to say, I knew her when. When we're listening to her songs on the radio, we're going to say, oh, I remember when. So uh, can we just give her a thanks of all the great ways which she has led us the last few years. And we appreciate you. Thank you for your friendship. Wow. Standing, we'll, give, we'll give it to God. Standing ovation for God. Thank you. So Natalie will be with us for, uh, for the next several weeks still, and uh, we wanted to respect your timing. We also wanted to give you a chance to be able to have conversations. Thank her. I get lots of emails from you guys talking about how our whole team leads, so feel free to uh, come talk to her after service uh, next couple weeks. We appreciate that. Let me have a quick prayer, and then we got to go. Father, thank you so much for Natalie. Thank you for her friendship. Thank you for how your spirit has worked in and through her. And God, I just thank you and ask that you will bless her, that you will use her passions and her gifts and take it to a broader stage. God, you allow this to be um, just a new season, a sweet time of ministry, Father. And we just thank you for the way in which you've kept our hearts together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. See you all next week. Thank you. Thanks.